Hi, and welcome to Women at Warp. Before we get into this episode, I wanted to give you a content note that our discussion will include mention of transphobic violence and suicide, subjects which we recognize may be particularly difficult for some of our listeners. And welcome to Women at Warp, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Join us as our crew of four women Star Trek fans boldly go on our bi-weekly mission to explore our favorite franchise. My name is Sue, and thanks for tuning in. With me today, I have crew member Jara. Hey. And two awesome guests, Callie. Hello. And Jonathan. Hi. And our main topic today, we're going to be talking about the Enterprise episode, Cogenitor. But first, before we get into our main topic, we have a tiny bit of housekeeping to do. Our show is entirely supported by our patrons on Patreon. If you'd like to become a patron, you can do so for as little as a dollar a month and get awesome rewards from thanks on social media to silly watch-along commentaries and some new special non-Trek content exclusive for certain uh, Patreon-level donors. So you can visit us at patreon.com slash womenatwork. You can also support us by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. So let's turn to our guests. Um, Callie and Jonathan, I'm going to ask you each to tell us a little bit about yourselves, your history with Star Trek. And because we're going to get deep into some gender stuff today, uh, if you would like to share your pronouns or any other information in that realm that you see fit. So why don't we start with Callie? Callie. Cool. Hi, uh, I'm Callie. I use she, her pronouns, and uh, I host a podcast called Queer Splaining. Uh, I am both queer and trans, and so uh, I have lots of, uh, I guess, baggage is the polite word <laughs> around uh, <laughs> gender and sexuality. Uh, growing up as a kid, like I knew I was different, but I hadn't exactly been handed the vocabulary to be able to accurately describe the ways in which I was different. And um, not too long after, like I, I found Star Trek just like on a Star Trek marathon before the premiere of season four of Next Gen. Um, and then it wasn't long after that that I saw The Outcast, And that was like, oh, I think I see a person who's maybe different in a way that I'm different. And like at least like the people that I love on the ship are cool with that. And so that sort of endeared me to the, the Star Trek world, just like seeing a world where it's like, yeah, maybe we'll get to a place where like, I don't have to be afraid of the ways in which I'm different. Um, also, I grew up without a father in my life, and Captain Picard very much filled that role for me. Uh, and so I learned a lot about like respecting people and morality and dealing with complicated questions of right and wrong from Star Trek. Um, and so it's really been sort of a, a lifelong love affair for me. I think I, I got into Star Trek when I was probably eight or nine, I think. Um, so yeah, so that's like a brief history of Callie and Star Trek. Jonathan? Hi, yeah. So Jonathan Alexandrados, I uh, use they, them uh, pronouns. So I'm a non-binary playwright and essay writer and uh, action figure junkie. Uh, and I, Star Trek is, um, it's, it's my early, uh, my earliest sort of living memories are uh, of watching Star Trek. And uh, that's because where I grew up in Knoxville, Tennessee, um, they would do marathons of uh, the original series and then the next generation. And my parents would just sit me down and, and I'd watch it uh, just obsessively. And I, I absolutely loved it, even before I could really understand what was going on. Um, I also grew up in a very uh, kind of conservative town for sure and then on top of that a conservative um, kind of household more or less and so when it comes to sort of understanding some of the gender stuff that Trek was trying to do and also kind of the gender stuff that was going on in my life I, I was very sort of I felt very not allowed to uh, explore that uh, as a as a kid, um, but later in life, when I went to grad school, I started studying um, transgender literature and reading tons of transgender 
um, autobiographies and, um, and works like that. And what struck me as I read was I was having this emotional connection to the work on a, on a much deeper level than I ever had before. And so after that, I had to start asking myself questions about like, well, who am I? You know, like, what, what does this mean about me? Um, the fact that I'm feeling this so, so uh, importantly. Um, and what I kind of realized was that um, I, I am non-binary and that's sort of uh, been running through my life uh, for quite some time. But there, in my childhood, I, I couldn't really um, express that or, or um, even really know what that is. So after that, I started, you know, thinking about, well, if that's, if that's where I am, you know, Trek has always been such a wonderful home and has always felt very accepting. Um, how can I sort of fall into that um, with my identity? And, and what I found was honestly like cosplaying um, sort of uh, any sort of gender bending or gender questioning or whatever kind of costumes uh, made me feel really, really good. And that I could do that in a, in a safe space of a, of a con, or at least it was safe in my experience. I know that's not necessarily Really, everybody's um, experience with them, but it was safe in my experience, and it made me feel um, really great to kind of do the the Trek cosplay in a sort of gender questioning kind of way, and I still kind of maintained that. Yay! Um, so, cogenitor. Co-genitor. That's what we're going to talk about today. <laughs> uh, this topic came to us from one of our Patreon patrons, YB. Thanks who, for that. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, who wrote, Cogenitor is my favorite Enterprise episode, from the light and fluffy early scenes to how absolutely shattering the conclusion is. And it's the first episode to really call attention to the fact that Archer might not be a great captain. But I also know that it's an extremely polarizing and controversial episode in regards to Tripp's actions, Archer's actions, and what the episode means in the bigger picture of Star Trek. There is a lot to unpack with this episode. Jarrah, would you be able to give us a quick plot summary? Sure. Um, so, in this episode, uh, they make first contact with a species called the Visians. And um, they seem super chill and relatable, especially to Archer. They just want to go out and explore shit and eat cheese and be nice. And um, when Archer invites them all over for a meal... They discover that the Visians have a third gender called a cogenitor, or the people are called cogenitors. And in order to reproduce, uh, a heterosexual cisgender couple of a man and a woman needs a cogenitor. And this cogenitor class is, uh, base is oppressed, um, you know, denied education only really useful for their reproductive ability turned, you know, passed from couple to couple to help them reproduce. And Trip meets a cogenitor and becomes really fascinated with liberating them. And uh, meanwhile, Archer's off having science-y, piloty adventures with the Visian captain leader guy. And Trip ends up teaching the cogenitor to read and... Not long after that, the cogenitor, who has now named themselves Charles, um, wants to have asylum on the ship and doesn't want to uh, return to its former life, for which Trip gets in a heck of a lot of trouble, and they are forced to send the cogenitor back. Yeah, it is quite sad and complicated. I think yeah. those are accurate adjectives that describe roughly the whole of the episode. <laughs> Sad <Yes>. and complicated. <laughs> Definitely. So this episode aired in 2003. Let's start off with how do we think this depiction of a, quote, third gender holds up today? Well, can I just say also that the the word or the term third gender is always kind of, it kind of <laughs> makes my skin crawl a little yep. bit just because like, yeah. well, so you've got... So you got male and female, right? Those are the normal ones. And then there's like maybe that third one that you kind of like put last on the list and mm -hmm. like, uh, you know, like, so that, that in and of itself is like, oh, that's, 
All right, so we're already starting off there, but on in the episode that is. So <laughs> I I think it to answer your question, I think it it holds up really poorly. Yeah, honestly, I would say the like, same. Like, because the whole thing is like, look how exotic these people are because they've got three, you know, <laughs> and like. And like, except for Flox, God bless Flox, because literally he's he's like the only person on the crew that's like, yeah, it's like, this is a normal thing. It's really not that big of a deal. Like, you guys should get out more, you know? And so like, he's like the one saving grace that I'm just like, you you and I are somewhat on the same page, my friend. I appreciate you. This episode needed more Flox. It did. Yeah. It did. And you know, though, you know, on that ship, there was like, there had to be some like two spirit person or like a Bernesha person from Albania, you know, like, or one of these people that is of an earthbound, like, quote unquote, third gender or whatever. And they must just be there like, seriously, you're sending trip? <laughs> like, I, 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 I'm kind of equipped here to have this conversation in a pretty in-depth way. And yet, you just, ah. Except apparently there's not, because T'Pol makes this comment at one point that's basically like, oh, the species is so unique that they're not just men and women. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) They they couldn't seem to decide whether it was rare or common. Because every other description is... This no, this happens a lot of places that there aren't quote just two genders. But then the next sentence is, well, most most species are just two genders. Yeah, like while we're speaking of seriously cringy phrases, can we talk about Trip saying, "Well, she looks more like a her than a him." Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's, I think, there's a whole discussion to have about pronouns here. Oh but my! Really God. quick, I do want to point out the good. And the the good is that Trip immediately accepts the cogenitor as a whole person. Yes. Mm-hmm. Whereas none of uh, their own species does. So I guess good for that. That's exactly the thing, though. Like, I think that the episode is pretty, um, s- well, smartish when it comes to talking about slavery. Like, mm. I think that that's as a topic in the episode I I felt that uh, on a much deeper level than I felt anything about gender. And to me, I mean, that, that kind of makes sense. I mean, it's an episode directed by LeVar Burton. I mean, of, of roots. Like, I mean, this is someone who like, as a critical reader and LeVar Burton is incredibly smart and incredibly uh, uh, powerful as a, as a reader, I'm sure he would see, you know, sort of the levels of slavery in this, in the, this text, in the script, but the, the gender stuff is sort of secondary to that. And I think that shows the problem when we try to lump all of this into, into one kind of issue episode, it's like, well, you, you want to do the slavery thing and you're kind of getting that in, in a pretty interesting way, but then you also want to do the gender thing. And it's like, you're going to end up doing neither very well. Yeah. <laughs> I had literally the exact same thought because it's actually been a long time since I watched enterprise through. And so I rewatched the episode twice uh, yesterday and today as sort of like a re-prepping for it and and I didn't remember much aside from the vague plot points and that was literally a thought that I had as I was like wow this is a far smarter commentary on slavery I think than about gender yeah I've also seen some comments about this episode where the commenter said they thought that this was supposed to be more about the subjugation of women Mm -hmm. than Mm -hmm. about the subjugation of trans or non-binary people which I can I can see that as well. I think though that this goes back to the point. Yes, Trip does respect the cogenitor as a person, except that he makes the assumption that I'm going to call them they, because um, I don't think yeah. that they ever determined a gender identity. He uh, makes the assumption that they're oppressed before asking them anything. Really? Yeah, that was another dimension to this that I that I picked up on. There was a lot of uh, echoes of like a white savior complex. Yeah, like, for sure. Like you're not really getting to know this person or this culture before you're making these judgments. And part of me is like, well, you don't necessarily have to do that to recognize when someone's oppressed. But I mean, especially if we're talking about like literally a society that developed completely outside of the the social context that we did like there's a lot you need to learn before you run in and start telling people how to do things and that that could have been the issue we were supposed to have with it because archer kind of has that issue with with the way trip handles this right sort of at the end of the at the end of the episode so i I think the fact that we feel that is is good like that's coming through yeah i agree so when the episode starts the cogenitor does not have a name and 
its family uses it pronouns mm-hmm. um, to describe the cogender. It really like hurts me to do that, which yep. is why I keep mm-hmm. pausing. Um, why why don't the Visians first of all have their own pronoun for the cogenders? Is it just not translating correctly? But you know, Trip insists on calling the cogenitor she because of that horrible line Callie mentioned. <laughs> right. But I think this is really twisty and like difficult to to wrap my brain around. But is it better to use it because it's what the rest of the society uses? Or is it better for Trip to try and use she or he because it's at least not dehumanizing? Or, I mean, ideally, he would have asked. Right. But he did not right. ask. So... Yeah, that's what I was going to say, because I've I've run into folks who use the pronoun it to refer to themselves. Yeah. Um, and like... I've got hangups on that because of my own societal programming, but that doesn't mean that I get to paint what my expectations are onto this person. And so, I mean, if we're talking about in-world context, um, like I would hope that by the time, you know, Star Trek is happening, that at least they, them would be a normal thing. And so, you know, whatever, whatever universal translator is in action would recognize that like, Oh, this is, this is a gender neutral pronoun and translate it as they, them. Um, of course this was 2003 and maybe uh, it's not too much to expect, but maybe it was too much to expect if you know what I mean. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I I definitely agree with, with Callie there. And and I think that, um, it's once we start kind of questioning, uh, pronouns that, a that a culture assigns or a culture has, I mean, that's, that's kind of a slippery slope and we, we don't necessarily want to go down that road. So yeah, I mean, I think that we kind of do have to go with the culture on that one and just, you know, it, it might feel odd or maybe not necessarily odd. Cause like Kelly said, plenty of folks do use it pronouns. Um, but, uh, we got to run with it. But IRL definitely ask people. Yes. Oh yeah. Totally. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, I think it's pretty clear with the slavery allegory that there are the, the writers were trying to make us make the point that this person is seen as an object or a possession mm-hmm. rather than a person. Yeah. Yeah. And not to radically change the subject, but the other thing that I was thinking about throughout this episode is that whenever there are discussions about uh, the actual, I guess, squishiness of gender, whenever we're doing something even adjacent to acknowledging that gender isn't a binary and that sometimes it's fluid, uh, why is it always feminine coded folks that those Mm. questions are foisted upon, right? Like we saw it in The Outcast, we see it in this episode. Um, so like anytime we're we're playing with gender expectations, it's almost entirely around people who are who are coded to read as feminine or who end up uh, identifying that way or being identified that way. Um, that's something else that kind of felt gross to me throughout this whole thing. Well, it felt gross to me too, and I think that the answer to that is is I mean, if we go with sort of the David Gerald and Andy Mangles kind of uh, uh, some some stuff that they've said, Rick Berman uh, kind of kept any sort of gayness out of Star Trek yeah. for, for as long as he could. And I, I mean, I think that there's a, there's some of that that runs through this here as well. Like this idea of, well, you know, if, if um, the cogenitor is male coded, then has this relationship with trip, even though, you know, the, the cogenitor is, uh, you know, outside of the gender binary, then uh, some will still read that as gay and we can't have that. And of course, Rick Berman wrote, co-wrote the script to this episode and it's like that that kind of makes my skin crawl even more so well right and by the time we're at 2003 i think we're probably past the excuse that the suits won't let us do it like i can i can i can begrudgingly maybe accept that in the 80s and 90s but by 2003 like you are not setting the world on fire to hint at a gay relationship like there's there there was not really an excuse then and there is definitely not one by 2003 in my humble opinion 
Oh yeah, it, definitely. Never an excuse. Uh, absolutely right. I think you can also point to um, what at least Julia Serrano calls transmisogyny, this idea that like it's more questionable for a person who is born male to want to change to um, appear female because or to like to be female because of the devaluation of femininity. For sure. And I, I mean, I'm not, I definitely don't think anyone explicitly thought that creating this episode, but like it plays in this insidious way throughout a lot of our cultural narratives. Yeah, it's it's the the gentle whispering of all of the expectations and boundaries that our society has set around gender that like even when you have someone who is trying to play with that in some way, like they still end up repeating a lot of those boundaries and maybe only moving them slightly or only starting to hint at really questioning them. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Jacob Tobia does a really good job of explaining this in their uh, recent book, Sissy, um, kind of the idea that the worst thing that a masculine person can do is anything feminine, you know, in certain circles. And of course, Tobia is, uh, you know, quite feminine in their performance, but also, you know, non-binary and um, talks about that, I mean, that, that exact thing um, quite deeply. We see that even today with clothing lines, you know, oh, yeah. lines that promote that they are making gender neutral clothing and are, are inclusive of everyone. Most of that clothing is still pants and <laughs> right. masculine coded clothing. Um, not always, but often. And like larger, bigger picture stuff is that, you know, societally, we're, we're socialized such that it's okay, okay, quote unquote, for girls to be tomboys or wear pants or run around and get dirt and have these like masculine qualities. But it is definitely not okay for boys to like girl things. And it's a damn shame, too, because I have seen yeah. so many men that look amazing in dresses, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> I love dresses. They're so, uh, they, they just feel nice. And I just hope everybody can hear all my air quotes. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, and, and in Cogenitor, I would say like the wardrobe felt pretty androgynous to me, which I thought was right. like, I mean, the outcast kind of was too, but it was reinforced by like casting all of the actors from that planet as being like reading female and um, female cis women actors. Mm-hmm. But um, the other thing I think is good, it wasn't all the way there, but they did, even though they were giving Charles feminine pronouns, they were also like, yeah, it's cool that you call yourself Charles, which before Discovery hadn't really happened in Star Trek that yeah. you were like, oh, you can be a woman, but also be have this name that's very masculine. So they were an- yeah. allowing some flexibility. Right. Yeah. There was no yeah. questioning of it. It was just like, oh, cool. Okay. We can do that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I mean, I think that, yeah, I agree that that's, that that's a very good thing. I think that, that probably, you know, one of the more, one of the less good things for me is, is this idea that gender in this case is so tied up in sexual function Mm -hmm. and like the cogenitor is a quote unquote third gender because they perform this sexual function. And that is, I think, incredibly offensive. This idea that you are just defined by what you do in a, in a, a sex act. And that is what makes your gender what it is. I mean, that is, awful yeah well it's the the idea that sex and gender are interchangeable and that they mean the same thing when they very much do not right well yeah and flox and trip flox being the doctor repeatedly conflate sex and gender in Mm -hmm. this episode yeah yeah and i mean there's yeah exactly sex sexuality and gender yeah Mm -hmm. um all of those um you know, it, it ignores, uh, I mean, it ignores things like the case of, of Letitia King, who was uh, a young middle school um, transgender girl and was killed. And then the news reports kept reporting that this was the death of a gay boy. And it's like, that's not, it, her classmates said, it's not that she's gay, it's that she's transgender. And there's a difference. And just the reporting of that kept sort of killing her again and again and again in that in that sense and it was so sad and it's so heartbreaking and then to see it sort of all over again uh via star trek in a much different context of course um it's just like ah yeah and that's something that happens to me all the time when i'm talking about trans stuff um people who are who are very well-meaning 
you know, I'll talk about my experience as a trans person. They're like, well, yeah, I wouldn't really understand that because I'm straight. And I'm like, Mm, there's more conversation that needs to happen here but like (laughs) like remember the audience right there's there's not time to do a 301 here but like these two things are not the same yeah exactly yeah like um, the scene where that sue's referring to i think is the one where they're in sick bay and he switches the words sex and gender interchangeably Mm -hmm. saying like not all species are limited to two sexes dot 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 and then continues and then later Tucker goes, I'm pretty familiar with how it works with two sexes, it being reproduction. And Fox goes, multi-gendered techniques aren't always the same. And it's like, okay, that's, yeah, no. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, if anyone's not super familiar, when you're talking about, like, reproductive capacity, the word sex is much more appropriate. And when you're talking about gender, you're talking about identity. And so to say like a multi-gendered reproduction technique is like basically meaningless. Yeah. And the well, the other one is uh, the dinner scene, right? When mm-hmm. uh, the he's explaining like, well, oh, he's very, very interested in our reproductive process. And like, it just reminds me of all of those scenes of like a family sitting around to dinner in the 50s. Like, well, those people, he's like, humans are bi-gendered. Like, that's weird guys and that <laughs> whole thing is just like oh my god please no <laughs> right, can i just ask a random question about this episode whatever happened with uh reed and the uh, okay the, i was totally the... gonna raise that i was like we should just <laughs> get that part out of the way because <laughs> like you're, you're talking about these things i'm like wait a second like halfway through this episode three-fourths of the way we just dropped this whole thing that like reed is totally like trying to sleep with the 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 like i guess female uh of the species that has come on the on the ship i'm like uh why is that in there um i think it was supposed to be comic relief and ah. defense against Dominic Keating worrying that people would think Reed was gay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, oh, look at him. Ha ha, he's such a manly man horn dog. <laughs> it, just yeah. made, it just made me think he was gayer, which I, I, I would love. I mean, I don't, I don't have anything. Oh, there. there's a whole thing on this in um, Star Trek The Human Frontier. And it talks about how um, there had been some discussion about Reed being gay. And he might have been theoretically the first openly gay character on Star Trek. Um, But Dominic Keating apparently reacted really poorly to this and uh, was told like, oh no, we weren't seriously considering it and was very relieved. Supposedly, if you ask him about it, he now tells a different story. Yeah. yeah. So, but there um, there are some quotes and in interviews that indicate otherwise at the time. Yeah, that whole scene also read to me as sort of a ham-handed way, like another way to point out like these people are different because uh because she does that whole like, well, we have to go to bed before we have dinner and like that just seemed very like I'm not sure that served a narrative purpose. Like they're literally just trying to beat you over the head with like, look how different these people are. That's weird. Well, they, they seem to like be shoving in as much heteronormativity as possible. Right. Because I mean, Reed even says like, normally you ask a woman to dinner first. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the Vissian captain says to when, when they're discussing warp drive with Archer about like, your father did this. That's amazing. He says the men who developed warp drive on our planet. Uh, It's like the, like that so easily could have been more inclusive with just the people or Mm -hmm. the scientists. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it struck me about, you know, how much they did that in this episode in particular. Yeah, and the the woman that Reed is cheese sniffing with um, <laughs> says, New favorite, you it's <laughs> only when a woman in, enjoys her intimate time with a man that she'll join him for dinner. And that, I think you're just supposed to assume they slept together. Yeah, like, right. I don't yeah, think it they, had any purpose in the story. Or there was really. like, there was more to it that got cut for time or something and they just kind of left it. <laughs> so I have an in-universe question that Ooh. might not even make sense to anybody but me (laughs) but they tell us over and over again that the cogenitors make up about three percent of the population the visian population as we saw in ds9 joined trill make up about three percent of the trill population but they're treated like an exalted class and the cogenitors are like a subjugated class Furthermore, presumably 3% of all children born would be cogenitors. 
So what happens to them? Are they just taken away? Man, that's a great question. It is. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess to the to the point about like whether we treat rarity as, uh, you know, something to be honored or something that we can just kind of um, basically abuse uh, or rape, mm-hmm. it seems. Um, yeah. I mean, that's uh, as to why that decision is made. I, it's a tough one. Um I think it, it might come down to a perception of who has the power um, yeah. because joined trill are, you know, in terms of society, they're like the cream of the crop, right? Like they are the smartest, the most athletic, the most physically fit, the most like everything that you would expect a society to exalt as, uh, as like good traits to have. Mm-hmm. They sort of exemplify the peak of all of those things. Um, whereas, you know, the cogenitors being necessary for reproduction. I mean, you know, in our society, it is generally like, like stepping into a societal point of view, right? We know that women are necessary for reproduction, but we don't value them as a society, uh, at least not as much as we should. And so like, I could see, uh, I could see a society exalting those folks as the like oh like we couldn't we couldn't exist as a species without these people so we need their gods like we need to worship them um but i also think that if there was some sort of cultural event in their history that let power be exercised over them to where they were subjugated like that things working out that way i think make makes sense to me i mean obviously i don't like it but like it's it's not tough for me to see how it would happen Mm -hmm. well and and to that point because you you mentioned something really really important there and and i think it's that it's getting at this idea of like what is the socio-religious mythos that surrounds these uh this minority so in um trill culture there's there's enough of a text there enough of a almost religion there to sort of say this is what you do so you don't question it that's just what you do and i get the sense that for the visians there's also a time-honored sort of cultural tradition of this is what you do you 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 act in this way so to do anything else would go against that and uh that would be you know a capital offense and i and i think that today in our society we we see that in in the treatment of people who are homosexual um in in you know in any sense because you know yes uh that is a that is a group of people that of course we should be respecting we should be honoring we should be you know but there are some uh in our society who who try to make this argument that well you know my god says that's wrong Mm -hmm. so therefore uh i'm going to treat it as wrong and you know of course we push back and we push back and we push back against that um but you know at the end of the day it is so hard to change anyone's sense of like well my god says this is what i should do so i'm gonna do it Mm -hmm. um and I wonder if there's something similar operating here. Well, I mean, yeah, I think you, if you look back at human history, um, we can see examples of cultures um, like two spirit people in Native American and indigenous cultures um, who were really and are um, in living culture still really, you know, respected and honored. Um, but that was pretty much stamped out of existence by Christian missionaries and uh, for, you know, white uh, capitalist purposes as well. Um, so certainly I think religion is a factor as well as economics. I think if you look at um, gender oppression uh, throughout the world, that a lot of times when um, people devalue, um, usually, often women, um, so if you look at sun preference in different cultures and in our own history, the idea in a lot of places, it's like it becomes self-perpetuating. So a woman's not val- as valuable because you there's an assumption that she's weaker and won't be able to work as hard for you. And then you – so you send your daughters off to go marry and live in another family, often paying the other family for that. So then you want daughters less because the daughter is like a liability on your family and the son is the person who brings – women into your family and gets more people working for you. And so it's it's complicated, but there are a lot of factors at play and you can definitely see parallels in our own society for how 
people could either become valued or devalued as a minority. Well, and you definitely you definitely can. I mean, and a lot of the a lot of the work that I do, sort of creatively and and um, and academically, deals with people uh, who are Barnesha, which in in Albanian culture is uh, I, I said this earlier, a quote unquote third gender, but they are traditionally people who were very uh, very much honored in the um, in the society. Uh, essentially, uh, Barnesha people were assigned female at birth and later transition to this gender in order to take on male roles uh, socially. Um, and once the communists took power in Albania, that was completely just, you know, not an option. I mean, to the point where people were killed, exiled, etc. Um, and so once a government shifts, then, you know, everything changes and nobody's allowed to question that anymore. To the point where today there are like 102 uh, Bernesha people existing in the world that we know of. Uh, when once upon a time, I mean, we were talking about hundreds of thousands, if not millions. So it's 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 awful uh, what can happen. Uh, I wish this uh, episode delved into that um, a little more, maybe the mythology of what creates this uh, society. But what we have is all we have. You know? Well, the other dynamic that I could see emerging is there's this thing that we often see in the Christian right where they think that the way they are oppressing women is valuing women, right? Mm. So like, you know, this is what a woman is supposed to do because being a mother and being the caretaker of the family is the most exalted thing. Therefore, this is what you have to do and you have no other choice. And that's oppression that is uh, that's at least sold as valuation and at sometimes even worship, right? And so I could see it very easily emerging as something like that too. Like it, it you know maybe started one one way and sort of evolved into this other thing where they um, you know at least sell it like uh, this is how we assign these folks value because they have this most important. Uh, they have this most important place in our society uh, when the problem is they don't have any other choice but to be that thing. And um, some might choose it on their own and that's great, but lots of them wouldn't and those folks shouldn't be forced into it. And that's how you create the hegemony. Like you don't need an army to enforce this because that system has been internalized so much that, you know, even if you were to come across a cogenitor who maybe is asexual, um, that just wouldn't matter in this in this case it would it would have it should matter but it wouldn't matter because this person has internalized this horrific system to the point of you know just saying well this is my duty i mm-hmm. guess i gotta do it you know and it's like no at least I, I i don't think so i'm interested because i didn't raise this in the summary and um you know, it's a hard topic, but the end of this episode when um, Archer informs Trip that Charles uh, committed suicide, basically was forced to return and um, ended up ending their own life. And Archer reacts basically like Trip says, this is my fault. And Archer's like, yeah, you're damn right. It's your fault. I don't know. Thoughts on that ending? I mean, on the one hand, I'm like, I, I like that it wasn't clean and that it, it showed – Ugh, I don't know if I like it, but it it showed that, you know, that oppression can have tragic consequences. But did it end up arguing that, like, knowledge of one's own oppression was what caused the tragic consequences? Well, that was going to be my thought, because I think it makes a very powerful statement. But I don't think the statement that I got from it was the one that they were trying to give. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it's sort of about this idea of uh, of, of the, you know, the, the white savior in this case the human savior mentality because like even if they were trying to do the right thing like obviously you can't just drop a bomb in the middle of society and walk away right like if you're Mm going to do this at the very least there's got to be a way that you go about it Mm -hmm. like you can't just do that knowing that like I'm going to have this one interaction with this one person that could radically transform the entire society in ways that I have no idea about Um, and I don't I don't know that that's why Archer was actually mad. If he was mad for that specific reason, then I'd be like, cool, I think we're on the same page. But I don't really think that's what it was supposed to be. I agree with what uh, with what Kelly uh, said there. I, I think that it, it just, for me, it fed into a really 
uncomfortable trope of trans and non-binary death. And I see that in media so much. And it's to the point where, you know, I, I am sort of asking, like, do we really only care about trans lives when they're dying? Yes. Like, I think that's mm. horrific, horrific, horrific thing um, to, to think about. So in a way, this episode wrote itself into a corner because um, if I had gotten the ending I wanted, which was a, an ending where this person does flourish and, and this could Janitor does make some sort of a, a, a vast cultural shift happen, then I, I mean, it would have basically been because of the, the cis savior. And that kind of would have been a little bit of a letdown too. But through the death, I, I also sort of am uh, really just triggered to think about all the other stuff I've seen and all the other stories that have been created where this is this is the inevitable end. And that makes me incredibly sad yeah i just think a really talented writer's room could have done better and mm -hmm. you know i i'm not a fiction writer and so like i couldn't tell you that like you know narratively you know this set of three other things would work better um but i completely agree with what you're saying about uh the trope of the the trans or non-binary or gender non-conforming person their death being used as the cudgel to make this thing significant um, like I'm just all the way over that being a thing. Um, mm -hmm. and it, and, and it also just in general, the idea of using suicide as the narrative cudgel, even if we're removing it from the context of, of gender and sexuality, like just the idea of like, Oh, you did this and this person committed suicide. Like, I don't know if, I don't know if lazy is the right word, but like, I just, I feel like they could have done something a lot better and, and maybe even set themselves up for future interactions with people. Like, you know, it could have ended on like, well, there's a revolution started. Hope you better, uh, like, mm -hmm. hope you thought that one through before you did that. Like, cause at least it opens the door for more discussion about, uh, you know, cause we don't have the prime directive yet. Right. And so we're, we're thinking through the ways that we engage with other cultures and, I just I feel like it could have been left open for a lot more discussion and a lot more commentary on these issues, but they were like, nope, suicide, we're going to make people feel feels because that's how you do that. It it definitely yeah. feels like Archer is upset because his new friend is mad at him. Totally. It was like, you ruined my fun adventures. <laughs> yeah, that's that's why he's upset. But to, to Callie's point, I feel like we can compare this pretty almost directly to yeah. TNG's iBorg, right? Because when they send Hugh back with his individuality... They're considering that, like, what I don't want to say an act of war, but like as as a strategic mm -hmm. shot, right, mm -hmm. against the Borg, that he's going to go back and this is going yeah. to destroy them. Mm -hmm. And that Trip certainly doesn't consider that, like, this will blow up their culture, or maybe he only thinks that can be a good thing. But it's there's there's a lot of consequences for this and especially when he was not asked or instructed to do any of what he did. Right, yeah, if the cogenitor had been asking for all of these things, I think that would change the tenor of it a lot. Um, because if, if, if I'm trip in this episode, I have to think like, gosh, I know what I think the right thing is, but I also am not going to be around to see the consequences of this happening. And so like at the very least, it's a lot more of a complicated question than he considers throughout the episode, regardless of what he actually ends up doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, as much as I, you know, appreciate um, some arguments around the prime directive in the world today, um, you know, um, I have friends who sponsor LGBTQ refugees, and um, I wouldn't be like, hey, Canada, y'all should have a prime directive. Yeah. That means you just ignore these people. Like, it's um, – I don't know that that's where the prime directive is meant to go when people are actually, you know, sentient beings right. who are asking right. for asylum. Yeah. Well, yeah. But the prime directive is about pre-warp societies. Yeah. Right. Both yeah, of these cultures true. have developed warp drive. They meet out in space studying the same star. Like, I'm not sure the prime directive applies yeah. here. 
it seems like the foundational kind of human text that they're sort of writing off of is like, it feels more like the Dred Scott decision, like to me, like sort of the, the Dred Scott case of like slave mm. escapes and then finds uh, a life that is, is better. But then, you know, the high court says, well, you got to go back. And of course that's a horrific uh, uh, decision. Mm-hmm. And it feels like the yeah. same micro version of that. I mean, the, the trouble is mm. when you inject gender into this, um, the the gender story i think wants to be much smaller and the 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 dred scott case is this epic thing and it's really tough to i think make those uh make those two tones level uh and i don't know that that would ever really be successful nor that it should yeah i feel like this story could be like a four or five episode arc as opposed to like a single contained episode because mm-hmm. there's just mm-hmm. way too much to unpack to be able to do it effectively like even i don't know like i feel like even people who are uh, really culturally competent in these issues would have trouble fitting all of this into 40 minutes. Yeah. Maybe a lot of it could have just been solved if they were like, hey, instead of telling an allegory about gay people or trans people, let's just have characters that are trans <laughs> and gay and do really all sorts of things. I really just want a non-binary person on one of these ships. Like, uh, that can't be that rare, actually. Like, in the, in the you know, future, assuming, like, you know, now... You know, we we have plenty of non-binary people uh, working at various uh, workplaces. Like, I feel like by then, mm-hmm. surely there's somebody, and surely you know what would be great is if the if these crews actually started to make an effort to say like, well, you know, okay, who who actually is the best person to deal with these um, situations, and then we could have had a really great moment of maybe a non-binary earth uh, human talking to a non-binary uh, alien in a completely different situation and wow like imagine all the levels that could happen there right imagine a non-binary starfleet officer talking to this society who are like yeah we have three genders and the human is like yeah you know actually for us it's way more complicated than that and <laughs> like like imagine the discussion you could have around that <laughs> yeah yeah. So that leads to the problem of Star Trek of why people in in humans in the future are so confused by individuals who don't conform to a gender binary. Um I guess for a long time Star Trek tried to play this off as humor. Mm. I think this might be one of the first times they sort of deal with it not in that way. I I mean even with the outcast we you know, the, the ship appears at, not appears, but it arrives at this planet full of non-gendered, if you will, individuals. And it, that's just, they use that as an allegory because the writers could not imagine such a thing being true. Like you can imagine in the writer's room them saying, well, this would never happen, so we can use it. Yeah. Right, because that's how science fiction yeah. gets away well, with the outcast, it feels like they were very much speaking more towards gay conversion therapy than anything else. Yep, you know, absolutely. Like, and and yet again, gender takes a, a backseat to to that. And like, I I like that Star Trek wants to address something like gay conversion therapy. I like the overall message of like you know gay conversion therapy. Uh, and I'm putting major air quotes around that term, obviously, because right. it is not therapy at all. Um, it it, no. it is uh, terrifying, and the, the results are can only be bad. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, again, you see them drop the ball on the the gender element to it. So, like, gender mm-hmm. is not just a tool that you can use to help along your allegory about something else. Like, gender is a is a very very complex thing uh, that needs its own um, narrative. Hard agree. Right. I think what I'm trying to say is when sci-fi does this kind of allegory, the writers are trying to come up with a situation that could never possibly occur in our world. Right? And there could never possibly be a group of people without a gender. There could never possibly be a third gender. Right? And they just are getting that wrong. Yeah. And in in all of these cases, you know, it's it's... 10, 15, 20 years later that the conversations become more prevalent in society. People are talking way more about, you know, gender issues and trans issues than we were in 2003. Um, And like, is that, oh, what are my words? How do we fix that? Just, I, I think the obvious answer is we get 
more people who are not straight and cis into writers. Yeah, that was what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's that. And, and I think from that, what we can expect to see is, uh, I mean, the shift also has to happen with, with producers and directors and, you know, and any level of, of that owner of that, of that sort of administration where the thinking is, is way old school. We need to change that. And I, I think that what we can expect to see is less and less of these jokes that are just built on, Hey, women are like this and men are like that. And, you know, can you imagine if someone, you know, goes against any of that? Like there are a few shows that I hate more than the big bang theory, which makes these jokes so often. Uh. And I just like, this is so tired. And yet, I mean, they're one of the most popular comedies, you know, that that's, that's going on right now. And it looks like you are absolutely missing the mark every single time well a, a journey that i've been on lately is recognizing that these folks actually already exist in these spaces the problem is that we're not giving them power and we're not empowering them to speak up right so like i was uh doing a a piece for my podcast and i was thinking like how many transgender journalists are there and my initial thought was like not many um, but like now I'm part of a community where there's over a hundred of them. Right. So it's, it's not that they weren't there. I just, I didn't have the awareness that they were there and hearing these folks talk. It's more that like they have to choose, p- pick and choose their battles, right? Because their editors are not always friendly. Um, the, the people in power are not always friendly and like, I feel like show business almost has to be the same way, right? Like there are non-binary people in these environments. There are trans people in these environments. There are queer people in these environments. And I am guessing part of the problem is, is they don't, they don't feel empowered to, uh, to ask for space for themselves. And that's really mm-hmm. sad to me because if I thought the problem was that they just didn't exist at the very least, that's a more simple solution. Um, like not easier, but a little bit more simple. Cause it's like, well, those folks aren't in the room. Let's get them in the room. My fear is that I think they are in the room, mm-hmm. but they don't feel comfortable speaking up. And that's a problem that I really just like, don't know how to solve. Well, and I mean, to me right now, as of today, 2019, we almost need look no farther than Castor Semenya. Like the, yep. the reporting that is going on around Castor Semenya right now is largely uh, heartbreaking. Uh, the, the number of outlets that are um, calling her transgender, which I mean, if mm-hmm. she was, great but she's not. I mean, like exactly. uh, the number of outlets that are reporting on the fact that she has too much of a male hormone, like that is absolutely not how science mm. works. Like this shows that socially we are still uh, fundamentally flawed in our overall view of gender. Um, and, and until we can change that, I, I mean, I, I, I want those people that Kelly's talking about to feel empowered. Um, I hate that they don't. And I think every time we see another news report that classifies gender in this way or another sitcom that classifies gender in this very old school binary way, um, we are oppressing them. Yeah, I agree. I think that there's an onus on the people who do have space, who have, um, you know, got in the door. Some of them have fought their way in the door, um, to hold the door open for other people and, um, not just be like, okay, I got in here. I'm probably a cis white woman or a cis gay man and white gay man. And, uh, okay, good. I know that sometimes if you fight your way in, you can feel like, okay, cool. Now let's celebrate. Great. But your work isn't done. You have to turn around and be like, who's missing? And uh, I think that you can interject in these conversations in these creative rooms and be like, I don't know that we're actually considering all the perspectives here. I can't actually speak for all the marginalized people in the world. I think there's also a perception that the entertainment industry is more open than others. And that's just simply untrue. Right. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. Maybe a little bit in theater, but not as much as you think. And definitely not in in TV and movie production. Um, I have a a friend who is a a PA on a show and uh, is asexual, but is not out because she's afraid of her workplace finding out. And if you think about it, like, as an ace person myself, like, I think it's pretty easy to be straight passing as much as I hate having to feel that way. Um, But... Like, she's honestly afraid that if 
her production company, if her, her employer finds out that she's ace and instead of straight, she'll be fired. Gosh, I, I, I hear that uh, on the theater side. Um, you know, one positive thing that, that I can sort of add to that is, is we just were talking about this very thing in a, uh, in a meetup that I went to at uh, TCG, Theater Communications Group, um, that uh, Corinna Schulenberg ran, um, who is a transgender playwright, um, and theater maker of all kinds. And, and we, we had this group of non-binary and transgender theater makers and actors. And we talked about all these issues of, you know, mainly casting, like, you know, the, the, the sort of discrimination that goes into casting transgender people. Uh, you know, so many people want to just cast cis people in those roles and, and like plenty of transgender actors, you know, who are looking for the work, um, get looked over for them. Um, and just thinking about ways to to change that to the point about holding the door open for other people. I have seen that happen in theater from transgender um, playwrights and, and producers and theater makers. Um, there is, in my experience, a very strong uh, stream of activism that runs through situations like that. So um, I, I have seen that happen. Um, of course, I can't speak for everywhere nor everyone. Generally, the more commercial you get, the more difficult it is. But yeah, I feel like like disco is starting to make some strides. Like when we interviewed Gersha Phillips talking about how, um, you know, the deliberate choice to name a woman Michael and the and and Gersha Phillips view that in the future, uh, clothing shouldn't be so gender specific and that all clothing should be empowering, um, which I thought was kind of cool. But they still haven't actually made the leap of having an actual non-binary character. Yeah, well, that's what I love about wearing my Starfleet uniform is that it looks pretty much the same across all genders and um i like that like it, it lets me really feel like you know who i want to feel like um and, and even though i when i wear it I, I realize that i i present as a cis male um you know i, I to me it doesn't mean that although i certainly acknowledge the privilege that comes yeah i just always like the cynic in me because i remember being at star trek las vegas and there were lots of folks who are ostensibly men wearing the scant and like people are cheering that and i'm like hmm. but if this person was wearing just like a regular dress would you be as excited i hope so like that's just that's mm-hmm. just the the cynic in me but mm. um but i just yeah. you know i always have those thoughts in the back of my head because it's like i feel like some people have like there's this space called star trek where all of these things are cool and anything goes but like let's get real and talk about how there are really only two genders like i feel like there's so much of that sort of compartmentalization mm. going on and it drives me and is is the scant as popular yeah. as it is in cosplay right now because it's funny right exactly right oh i hope not i hope that's not i like i wear the scant because i to me it's a it's an environment where i can wear a dress and not get my ass kicked and i really um like that uh and and to me it's a very serious thing um although i do wear um dresses and all sorts of things publicly um i always have felt you know in in a sort of Star Trek convention, if I'm dressed like that, um, then, you know, I sort of have this out if a situation becomes unsafe. Yeah. And it's so like, you know, on the one hand, it's, it's great and empowering that there's a space where that can happen. But, you know, on the other hand, it's like, this shouldn't, this shouldn't have to be a thing. Yeah. I sort of made a deliberate choice. Like when, if I'm not in a place where like my paycheck is at stake, like t-shirt and jeans is what I wear. That's my style. And like backwards Starfleet flat bill hat. And like, you know, I, I emceed a convention where like most of the speakers were like business casual suit and tie. And I'm like, no, damn it. Like I'm a woman and I am wearing a t-shirt and t-shirt and jeans, traditionally masculine style clothes because like, this is what makes sense to me. And it like, it felt like such a, it felt like such a statement. And I don't know if anybody else like picked up on that. Um, but, but like, I, I, I know what you're saying when you say like, like it's nice to, to have a space where you can do that. And it feels like such a, like at one, you know, in, in one point it's just like, cool, I get to express the way that I feel and I get to like the way that I look. Uh, and then it also feels like a, maybe radical is the wrong word. It feels like a very subversive kind of activism as well, um, which is like cool, but it shouldn't have to be that way. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's why when I teach, I teach in, in clothing that is um, much more, more feminine um, because I, I feel like I want my students to see someone that, you know, maybe doesn't look the way they might expect, you know, and if, if you just looked at my face, you know, you might expect me to be wearing like a suit and tie or something. Mm -hmm. But if you looked at everything I have on, then you see someone who all of a sudden, you know, doesn't conform to your gender norms. And I think it's important for, for young people to, to see that and to just be like, okay, now mm -hmm. I have this frame of reference. And if I feel this way, then I have permission to do the same, which of course everyone in my class does. And if I don't feel that way, then at least um, it's normalized. Absolutely. You know, I mean, this stuff is old, old, old stuff. Queerness is old yeah. like we, we are talking like centuries old people who are non-binary people who are you know gender queer what we would call i mean you know this stuff is old 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 in many many cultures and the fact that people try to pass it off as some fad or some recent trend or just what the kids are doing is is absolutely offensive we need we need we need text to talk about this stuff as the historical um, um, mm -hmm. thing that it is. Yeah. And, and it even bothers me when people who are otherwise affirming talk about these things as if they were new and it's like, and, and, and it's that, that cultural solipsism, right? Like I just heard about it. So it's obviously a new thing yeah. <laughs> as opposed to like, maybe this just means I'm a little behind the curve and you know, it's, there's a, there's that interplay between, you know, you grew up in a society where this isn't a thing that's talked about and we do have to talk about that societal aspect, but there is also a bit of personal responsibility involved in like, if I claim to be a person who wants to understand human culture, these are definitely things I should at least have a passing familiarity with and non-binary people are not new. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we talked about it a little bit, but I want to uh, go to the end of this episode real quick and taken in conjunction with the outcast. Uh, are, are two episodes that deal mainly with gender. One commits suicide. The other is essentially reprogrammed, quote unquote. So why, how, rather than why, how can we react to Star Trek's treatment of its gender nonconforming characters? And what do you think we can do to make sure that they're treated better in the future? I mean, to me, um, the most intriguing uh, episode of, of TNG is, is uh, Lower Decks, where we actually get to see some of the, the non-bridge crew, you know, and kind of mm -hmm. what, they're, what they're up to. And the reason that I bring that up is because if you've assembled a show where you're, you're dealing with the fact that like, okay, well, the bridge crew has to deal with this and the bridge crew doesn't contain anybody that is of this particular community. Well, then do something small. Do something like a Lower Decks episode. Do something where like you actually get to see you know, maybe people who are of the community, but maybe aren't, you know, on the bridge grid and maybe actually get them questioning, like, why, why don't we see ourselves on the bridge of this ship? Like, why, why, you know, even though we, we might encounter a, an alien race that, that doesn't um, treat uh, all of its genders with, with the fullest respect, why doesn't ours do that, you know, too? Like, it, it, maybe the, our, our um, you know, sort of Starfleet gender culture isn't killing anyone, but why aren't we getting promoted? You know, these are kinds of conversations that I think we need to be willing to have in Star Trek from time to time. And, and um, I, I, I think that could be one way to maybe approach this. Yeah, I, I tend to, to be someone who wants a little more than that. I mean, I, I think that would definitely be good. But for me, I'm just like... You know, I love I love Star Trek. It's been a lifelong obsession for me and probably will be for the rest of my life. But we are so far past time. Like we are so far past time for this kind of thing to be normalized in this universe that we love. And um, at the very least, I would like to see, um, you know, if not like one of the main bridge crew, but like a recurring secondary or tertiary character uh, that has gender variants of some kind. Uh, that is just like something that's something that's brought up in a very casual way. Something as simple as this person uses they them pronouns, and there doesn't even necessarily have to be any more commentary on it than that. Um, because that's one of the 
conversations that I had with someone is that like, you know, so obviously this far into the future being trans is something that's totally normal. And if somebody chooses medical transition, it would probably would happen very early on in adulthood. And so like, how would the conversation even happen? Because nobody would think it was a big deal. And I think that's a valid question to ask, but I think a very easy way to do it is to have a non-binary, a non-binary character that uses they, them pronouns. And I don't know that there has to be more commentary than that. Like there can be, but if we're talking about just including and normalizing this in the Star Trek universe, having a character that uses they, them pronouns or having, uh, having a trans actor play a secondary or tertiary character, even if their gender is never exactly commented on. Like, I think those things would be fantastic steps forward. You know, what's interesting about that. It's almost as if discovery in a, in a, like a, a blink and you missed it scene sort of did that with disability. There's one scene in, um, where it's just a general sort of scene on the discovery and we see somebody in a wheelchair yeah. and you get the sense that in the future, they could probably have the technology such that that person perhaps doesn't need the wheelchair. But then that brings up the idea of like, well, maybe maybe there's a better sense of like choice involved there and you know so that to me opened up my mind to a whole different view on um disability and i'm certainly not trying to equate the two but i i think that there are those moments where we can look at a character even briefly and go oh that really makes me think that really makes me see things it just takes such a, a little thing but the flip side to that is yes i'm totally in favor of um going even bigger and and saying you know yes let's put uh put people on the bridge um uh, you know for if if the goal really is to have a star trek series or two like running continuously throughout the year in in a couple of years which seems like their goal um you are programming lots and lots of shows right now so Think about who you're putting on. Absolutely. Like, like this is such a crucially good time for them to write this gigantic misstep. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> but we are near the end of our time. Is there anything uh, we didn't touch on that anybody wants to talk about, about uh, Cogenitor? The only other thing that that really sort of caught my ear is uh, when Trip talks about human rights mm. and the response is, they're not human. And I'm just thinking like, wow, what a missed opportunity for a deeper conversation on humans thinking we're the center of everything. Mm-hmm. Surely we would have thought up something better than the phrase human rights yeah. by then. I, my only point would be, I'll be happy to not watch this episode again for a while. <laughs> That's about it. Yeah, I kind of had the same thought. Jara, well, thank you everybody for coming on the show. This, I think this was a great discussion about a, a somewhat difficult episode. Uh, as we sign off, uh, Callie, where can people find you on the internet? I'm at Callie Gets It on Twitter, and my uh, podcast is called Queer Splaining. Uh, any place you find podcasts, you can find it, uh, and uh, queersplaining.com is the website. Jonathan? I am at J Alexan on Twitter. Um, you can also look me up on Facebook by name, Jonathan Alexandrados. And Jara? You can find me at on Twitter at J-A-R-R-A-H Penguin and also at TrekkieFeminist.com. Awesome. And I'm Sue. You can find me on Twitter at Spaltor. That's S-P-A-L-T-O-R. If you'd like to reach the show, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Women at Warp. You can find our website at womenatwarp.com or shoot us an email at crew at womenatwarp.com. And for more from the Roddenberry Podcast Network, visit podcasts.roddenberry.com. Thanks so much for joining us. The Roddenberry Podcast Network. Podcast.roddenberry.com.